very broadly, what is the difference between something that is a proverb and something that is a law? What are the what are proverbs? Okay, good. Uh, so the proverbs are catchy phrases. Uh, they're easy for us to remember, um, and they are there to give us wisdom. If we if we go about life according to what the Proverbs themselves are telling us to do, uh, then that is the way of wisdom. And most of the time, not always, most of the time what the Proverbs says will work out in the end. Um, so we have to look at the Proverbs and remember they are not absolute truths in terms of the fact that if we do this, it will always happen that way. Um, they are... Um, they are, uh, they are what am I... Sorry, my sickness has my mind all over the place. Um, they're nuggets of wisdom, I guess, that as, uh, as we look to them um, and we compare those ways of dealing with uh, whatever circumstances we have compared with the way uh, that we would determine on our own or the way of the world, uh, then most of the time it's going to work out according to the way that the Lord has um, stated. Now, uh, what about law? What is law? God's law. Okay, an absolute. Uh, God has commanded something and therefore it is that way. Okay, so that's the difference between proverb and law in that regard. Uh, the proverbs are not always absolute, while God's law is. We cannot escape the reality of God's law. Um, so, <clears throat> I want to give you an example of how a proverb can, um, can become even contradictory if we're trying to apply it as an absolute. Look at Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. That makes sense, right? That's helpful. Verse 5, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, Usually, uh, if we're going to have two statements in the scriptures that we're going to have a hard time dealing with because they seem like they're conflicting, we're looking at two different books of the Bible and have to work through context and all that. Here we have one verse right after the other. And they seem to be saying different things. Answer not a fool according to his folly. And then in verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly. So, uh, so what's going on here? Um, there are times when it is foolish to answer a fool according to his folly. And there are times when it is wise to answer a fool with foolishness. So we have to understand here what Solomon is telling us is simply uh, sometimes we need to just go ahead and cut it off and be done with it. Other times we need to progress with it in his own foolishness to present it to him in that way so that he can see his foolishness. So, uh, Solomon would look at this and say, uh, it really depends on the circumstances. depends on who it is and what's going on and everything else. Jesus tells us that there are times when uh, speaking with certain people about uh, gospel things is casting pearls before swine. You'd never take a pearl necklace and throw it into uh, a pen with hogs. My grandpa raised hogs. It's a pretty nasty thing. Um, what would they do with it? trample it in the mud. They might chew on it and spit it out. Um, no one's going to do that with pearls. And his, um, 
uh, his illustration there was we don't take the, the, uh, the things of God and put them to someone who is just going to openly mock and ridicule them time and time again. That there is a time to just be silent. But also we understand that um, we are called to go to those who are uh, the fools of the world uh, with the wisdom of God's word and to, uh, to reason with them and to call them to repentance. And so there is a time for that as well. So we can see here we can't, we can't take verse 4 and make it an absolute law, right? Because that would uh, go contrary to verse 5. So we have to understand that these little, um, these little um, proverbs of wisdom are simply to help us, depending on our circumstances. And so you're probably, someone's probably thinking, well, when do we know which one to do? <laughs> um, well, we, we need to consider the full breadth of Scripture and where... Uh, where the scriptures call us to in those circumstances. Yes. Sure. Yeah. The probably the most um, regular occurrence of this would be if there's someone in our lives that we continue to um, to bring the truths of God's word to, and not that they're not that they're not believing, not that they're not, uh, they don't really care, but that they're antagonistic. And they're, they don't want to listen, they want to fight. Uh, they want to um, they ridicule you and continue to, um, to trample the, the things of God. And they're openly blaspheming God in order to offend you and everything else. There's a time when we just need to back away from that and say, okay. I've done what I needed to do in telling you what the truth is. You're not willing to have a conversation. You're not willing to listen. Therefore, we just let it go. Um, But the Scriptures call the one who is a fool the one who doesn't fear God. And so a fool is simply one who is an unbeliever. Um, So there's a time when we answer a fool in his folly, and uh, we continue to go back to them with the gospel. But this is going to be one who's listening to us, maybe have a conversation. They may never believe, but at least they're willing to listen and have uh, dialogue about it instead of continue to to be antagonistic. So, um, again, it's very situational, uh, but we can't make a law of either of those verses, uh, or else we find them contradicting one another, and the Bible does not contradict itself. Um, Now, as we distinguish between proverb and law, we have to distinguish between different forms of law. Now, here I'm not talking about the difference between civil, ceremonial, and moral law. We've talked about that quite a bit over the last several months. Um, Here I'm talking about uh, within God's law, um, we find two kinds of law um, that are very easy to determine. One is called apodictic law. A-P-O-D-I-C-T-I-C. Apodictic law. The other one is uh, casuistic law. Casuistic. C-A-S-U-I-S-T-I-C. C-A-S-U-I-S-T-I-C. Yes, A-P-O-D-I-C-T-I-C. Now, apodictic law expresses absolutes and follows a direct uh, follows the direct personal form of "thou shalt" or "thou shalt not." So, the Ten Commandments are apodictic law: "Thou shalt do this; thou shalt not do that." Um, so, that's a very simple form. 
um, casuistic law is expressed in, uh, in terms of if-then. If this happens, then this is the result. Um, so <coughs> this is, uh, as you can derive maybe from the name of that type of law, this is where we get case law. If something happens in this, in this way, uh, then here's the result. Um, so let me give you an example, Exodus 23 and verse 4. Exodus 23, 4. The Lord commands, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, we can say right here, then you shall bring it back to him. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. So here we have some case law. Um, and notice the first phrase is, um, is the if statement, but then he gives a you shall statement. So we get that other type of law worked in here, that you shall do this. This is the, this is the result. Uh, so we have explicit instructions here concerning the return of your enemy's ox or donkey if it's uh, out in the road or if it's in the ditch or if it's in your yard or whatever. Um, so you might read this and think, well, what if I see my enemy's cow or camel? Uh, what then? We don't have a law about that. Um, well, here's the, the, the issue with this type of law is that it is giving us a principle on which to work. So the principle applies no matter what kind of animal it is. Um, if we outlined every single scenario uh, and recorded it, uh, we would have uh, not enough space in all the world to, f to store all of the volumes uh, of what would have to be outlined. So... Um, we have to understand that this type of law is giving a principle by displaying an example of what that would look like. Um, so it covers cows and camels and chickens and horses and dogs and armadillos and whatever else. Um, so case law provides an illustration of the principle. But the principle has an obviously wider realm of application. Does that make sense? We're tracking on those two forms. Okay. So it's very important as we read to, as we're reading, we make a determination between something that is law and something that is a proverb. We don't want to turn a proverb into a law, um, but we also don't want to um, think of law as being proverbial. They're very distinct and very important um, to, uh, to divide out. All right, that's rule seven. That was short and easy. Um, we're going to look now at observing, rule number eight, observing the difference between the spirit and the letter of the law. Well, perhaps you've heard that phrase before. Go ahead. Yeah, we have to... Yeah, I do. This is, that's where we get into having to determine, is this the moral law of God? Is this a civil law of God? Is this a ceremonial law of God? Most of those types of things, what you're referring to, are going to be the civil law of God. Remember, God was, they didn't have a president, they didn't have a king, they didn't have Congress, they had God. God gave them their law, God told them how they were to function and everything else. The law of the land was determined by God. And so these sorts of laws, like the one we just read about a man's ox or a donkey, um, that was God's civil law that he was giving to them. 
When Christ came, He fulfilled the civil law in its entirety. We have a law of the land, and we're commanded in the Bible to obey those who rule over us. Uh, God has given them authority. God has given them the sword. Um, and so we are to submit to uh, the authority of the ruling government of the land. Um, so the civil law in itself is passed. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. Um, but it still gives us a principle here. So what would be the principle of that one? If, if uh, as, as the command is, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. What's the moral principle that comes up in the midst of that civil law? Okay, the right thing is, according, remember what Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount. How do we, how do we relate to our enemies? We love them and pray for them, right? Um, and this is a working that out. And so we see the Old Testament, um, while Jesus had not yet stated that in the Sermon on the Mount, this was several thousand years beforehand, God is already commanding that you do this. You love your enemies um, because it's good and right and it's according to my law. Jesus was just making that explicitly clear. So um, even when we read the civil law, we see the moral law of God interwoven in that. Um, there's very specific principles to be drawn out. Does that help? Okay, good. All right, the difference between the spirit and the letter of the law. Now, we all know the reputation of the Pharisees in the New Testament. <coughs> uh, they were very meticulous about keeping the letter of the law while violating the spirit of the law constantly. Um, so, uh, for example, I might have shared this one before. Um, most, of their, most of the laws that they... Uh, that they developed for themselves and that they held so strictly to the letter of, but not the spirit, were laws concerning the Sabbath day. Uh, so one, for example, um, they had determined that on the Sabbath day you couldn't, travel, um, you couldn't travel very far because in order to do so would constitute work. It would be too much on the body and it would be a breaking of the Sabbath. Um, so, in order to be technically correct, um, if a Pharisee had, a, uh, had some traveling he wanted to do on the Sabbath day, um, then the day before, he would take some of his personal items and he would walk a ways down the road. He would place a personal item here under a rock. He'd go further and place it under the bush. He'd go to someone's house and place it there. And so on the Sabbath day, he could travel to these different locations, and uh, he justified, since his personal items were there, that was his place of residence, and therefore he wasn't breaking the Sabbath law. Um, well, that's absolutely foolish. Um, well, my toothbrush is under this rock, so this is my home. Um, I traveled 50 kilometers to get here, but it is where I live. Um, so they developed their own laws that they didn't keep, and then they put that weight on other people. Well, they held to the letter of the law, but obviously um, they took the spirit of God's law and completely distorted it. Um, so, as we talk about that, though, there were various types of legalists that we read about in the New Testament. Now, um, one, the, the most uh, notable one is the one we've just talked about. Those who legislated rules and regulations beyond what God has commanded. Anytime any law is given by an individual within the setting of you must do this, um, then we're going beyond God's law. And to do that is legalism. Um, so I'll give you an example of that. If we came here on 
um, on Sunday morning, and uh, as you came in, I said, um, uh, I don't know, men, you must wear uh, you must wear ties to church. It's an absolute law. You have to wear a tie to church. Um, does the Bible command men to wear ties to church? No. Uh, if so, uh, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> um, is it a liberty? Can we wear ties to church? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, are there those who, uh, as a result of uh, cultural influence and everything else, think that it's important to wear ties to church? Yes. Um, but can we make the biblical case that God demands that men wear ties to church? No, absolutely not. And to say so and to demand such is to add to God's word. It is a form of legalism. This is exactly what Jesus rebuked in the Pharisees as they made the traditions of the rabbis as authoritative as God's law. Um, <coughs> some obviously more <clears throat> guilty than others. Um, in our day, I'd say a lot of the, uh, a lot of the legalistic tendencies are uh, well-intentioned. I'd say people, people who think that men need to wear a suit and tie to church are well-intentioned. They have, uh, they have uh, in their minds that it's something that uh, honors God more than something else, and they want to honor God, and they want to see other people honor God. And so eventually, though, they make a law of it. Then it becomes legalism. But well-intentioned or not, it is legalism. Um, the Sabbath day journey incident, which I just told you about, is um, an illustration of the other most frequently found type of legalism. It's to obey the letter while violating the spirit, and that makes one technically righteous. But in your technical righteousness, you're actually corrupt because you're not dealing with your heart, you're dealing only with external matters. Um, so uh, we have to be very careful as we've uh, been made very aware of as we've gone through the Ten Commandments, um, it's easy to look at all the Ten Commandments and say, I'm doing pretty good. But as we begin to drill down, it doesn't take long before we start to say, I'm not doing good at all on any of these. I've broken all of them. Uh, because we're moving beyond the letter of the law, and now we're beginning to deal with the spirit of the law. That's exactly what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. He was dealing with the spirit of the law that all of the Israelites had missed. They thought they were righteous because they held to the letter. Um, so we have to be very careful. Now, we also have to understand, though, that letter and spirit are inseparably related to one another. The legalists destroy the spirit of the law, and the antinomians, those who are anti-law, uh, they destroy the letter of the law. They would say, well, it's only the spirit that matters, uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter at all. Um, so, as Jesus discussed the Mosaic Law in the Sermon on the Mount, many people since then have read that and have distorted it in all sorts of ways. Um, I'll give you an example from a, a newspaper article. Uh, a psychiatrist uh, looked at the writings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, he, he, uh, he said that the ethical teachings of Jesus um, were so naive that he couldn't 
believe that anyone would look at Jesus and say that he was, uh, he was a good moral or ethical teacher. Um, he could not understand that. And he pointed specifically to Jesus' teaching on murder and adultery. So we've looked at both of these very recently. Um, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount about murder? You, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but what does he say? Okay, if you, yeah, that's good. If you've, if you've hated someone in your heart, then you've murdered them. What does he say about adultery? You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but what? Okay, if you lust, yeah. If you lust after your neighbor's wife, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Okay, so this psychiatrist has looked at this and he said, that is so absolutely distorted. Um, Any teacher who thinks anger is as bad as murder or lust is as bad as adultery... um, doesn't get it. He went on to say, if a person is angry at someone, that can be harmful. But if the anger leads to murder, the implications are far greater. Anger doesn't take a person's life and leave wives widowed and children fatherless. Murder does. If I have a lustful thought, it may injure the purity of my own mind, but I haven't involved the woman in the act of infidelity to her husband that could destroy her marriage and her home. So he went on to say that um, such teachings as, as Jesus's were a serious detriment to responsible life in a society. So what's, what's wrong with what he's saying? What is he focused on? Okay, so he's dealing only with the letter of the law. He's not dealing with the spirit of the law. Now, I'll get to that in a minute. All right. So, perhaps more popular than what he came to in terms of his conclusion um, is what some people will uh, argue with themselves. Well, I've already lusted after her. I've already lusted after him. So, I might as well go ahead and commit adultery um, since I'm already guilty of breaking God's law. <laughs> um, well, that's obviously a very gross distortion of what Jesus has commanded. It compounds the felony of lust uh, with the full measure of the sin of adultery. Now, when we look at adultery and lust, um, is there a difference? There is, right? Is there, is there a difference between um, me speeding uh, 15 miles per hour over the speed limit or me driving completely drunk? Is there a difference? There's a difference, right? Yeah, end it right there and not go on. Sure, absolutely. So what those people miss who reason in that way is, yes, sin is sin. We are all guilty of sin, and it doesn't matter what that sin is, we carry that guilt. And whatever that sin is, is guilt enough to condemn us forever. But, as we look at that, we have to understand that there are varying levels of sin. Some sins are more grievous than others. Um, 
That's why, uh, even as you read God's law, when He had the civil law amongst the Israelites, some punishments for specific sins were more serious than others. Some constituted death, while others may be banishment from the city for seven days or whatever it was. Um, Same in our society. Certain laws are um, a slap on the wrist. Certain others, if you break them, are jail time. There are certain others that maybe constitute the death penalty. Um, Because there are varying degrees of sin, there are varying degrees of consequences. So we have to understand that while Jesus is saying, yes, the letter of the law is do not murder, the spirit of the law is don't hate anyone in your heart, and if you do, you're guilty of sin in the same way as one who murders. Guilt abides in you um, just as it does in him. Uh, That doesn't mean, so you might as well go out and kill your neighbor. Uh, It simply means that there's guilt of sin just as there's guilt of sin there. So don't go thinking you're all righteous because you didn't kill anybody. You hate them. You're still sinning. So that's the difference between the spirit and the letter of the law. Antinomianism? Yeah, antinomianism is what... um, They would look at the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, and so they would say... um, Let me think of an example with that. Well, I'm trying to use the same thing. So if we we think in terms of uh, um, murder or hatred in the heart, the antinomian would say, well... Um, I'm, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. I hear that all the time. Well, nobody's perfect, so um, yeah, I'm going to hate people in my heart. But you know what? I'm a Christian. Jesus died for my sins, so it doesn't, it doesn't really matter in the end. I'm, uh, I'm forgiven, and so whatever. And so that leads to a, um, uh, to a licentious life where we just go and we, we sin. We have complete license to do whatever we want to do because in the end, grace is going to abound and cover all my sin. Well, Paul addressed that in Romans, right? He said, uh, because grace abounds, should we sin all the more to make, it, to make grace uh, to be, uh, for people to see God's grace and to uh, be uh, enamored with that and just to see how marvelous it is? He says, no, by no means. Just because there's grace doesn't give us freedom and license to go sin. Um, so the antinomian would look at, uh, for example, yeah, that grace is the excuse of, well, we're going to sin anyway, so we might as well um, just go for it. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me, those are two uh, polar opposites, legalism and license, in one way, but in, this, in another way, they're very much the same. They're very much the same. They're both um, taking God's law and twisting it uh, in different in different ways. Um, so as we, uh, it's important too as we think of um, varying degrees of sin in terms of breaking God's law. Um, there is a biblical uh, principle of justice that differentiates between degrees of evil and degrees of punishment even. Um, So, let me, let's look at Matthew 5. I think that'll be the easiest. Matthew 5. Let me, let me say this first. 
Jesus tells us in the scriptures that um, if you slander a person by calling him a fool, what does he say? Does anyone know? If you slander a person by calling him a fool, what? Okay, good. You are, uh, you are guilty and you, are, um, you have opened yourself up to God's um, wrath, to God's condemnation. Now, that does not carry with it the implication that all, uh, all the punishment of God is equal. So if I call someone a fool, does not mean the punishment that comes alongside that, if I am not redeemed, is the same as one who has taken the life of another person. Um, all punishment in hell, according to the Bible, is not equal. Um, so slander is a serious offense, but being destructive to another life is worthy, uh, is worthy of hell. And in that worthiness of hell, there are differing levels. So uh, Jesus is underlining the seriousness of that sin. Um, but he doesn't teach that it's the same. So the New Testament warns against this. Romans 2.5 says, Storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Well, how can you store up wrath if the punishment for sinners in hell is the same? Right? So if I'm storing up wrath for myself, um, it's going to be different than what someone else is. If they're striving for holiness and righteousness and I'm not, I'm storing up more wrath for myself than they are. There's all these warnings in the Scriptures. For instance, uh, for someone who constantly uh, comes to worship every Lord's Day, they're in Bible studies and everything else, but they don't believe the Gospel. They know the truth. They've heard the truth. They continue to hear the warnings of Scripture over and over and over. They're called to repent a hundred times in their life. They never believe the Bible says that they are storing a wrath for themselves. They are held more responsible than the one who dies in their sins but never heard the gospel. Now, they both go to hell, to be sure, but one is more responsible than the other. And therefore, we see, I think we can draw the inference from that in the scriptures, that there are varying levels of punishment. What that looks like, I don't know. I don't know if Dante was correct or not, Dante's Inferno. Um, but he at least drew out that concept that has been held throughout the ages in church history. Um, but the point is that all sin will be punished, um, but that the punishment will not necessarily be the same. Okay, so um, as we look at uh, Matthew 5, Let's read verses 17 through 19. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is he telling us about those in heaven? He's ascribing to this the fact that 
both individuals will go to heaven, right? Is that what he says? Well, we, we, we draw from this in the same way that we understand in terms of hell, that when, people get to, when we get to heaven, there will be uh, varying levels of, of blessing from God. Now, all of us are going to be in heaven, so uh, things aren't going to be bad. <laughs> there will be no sin, there will be no suffering, there will be no um, uh, any of those things. Uh, but... You think of all the scriptural things that talk about um, storing up treasures in heaven. Well, what does that mean? Or uh, this here, one will be least in heaven, one will be greatest in heaven. Um, we learn about those who will be king, kings and rulers in heaven. Um, so as we think through those things, um, we don't have the whole picture to be able to put all that together and exactly what all of that means, but we at least have some indication um, that... Our works here on the earth as a result of our salvation um, do matter eternally in that uh, the Lord, um, uh, to whom much is given, much is required. Well, if we're fulfilling what's required of us because of what is given, the Lord has plans for us uh, beyond in the new heavens and the new earth um, that are going to um, still be that we're uh, we have different, not levels, I don't think. I don't think it's, you know, that I'm somewhere that someone else isn't or whatever because of what we did. Um, yeah, and what that looks like, we don't, we don't know. But I, I don't think that it's not that we won't interact, that we won't be together, that we won't be. But, um, you know, perhaps it's uh, whatever... I don't know, whatever treasures it is the Lord has that we have, one may have more abundance than the other or something along those lines. Sure. Sure. And we're talking in terms of new heaven, a new earth. A lot of people have this idea about heaven that we all kind of have clouds and wings and harps and we just sit around and sing to Jesus all day. Um, that's not what the Bible paints the picture of. We get a picture in the Bible of a city in the middle of a garden. And so there will be work in heaven. There will be, um, there will be homes in heaven. There will be interaction between people in heaven. Uh, but it's all going to simply be perfect. <laughs> there will be there will be no sun and moon and stars. The light that we see will be radiating from Jesus, who's on the throne. Uh, but in that, that uh, we will have, uh, there will be uh, on the new earth. There will be kingdom. Uh, there will be um, not kingdoms uh, in our in the sense that we think of, but there will be places of uh, where we're we're placed in authority in terms of those sorts of things. But there's perfect submission, there's perfect rule, and all these sorts of things. We see this throughout the scriptures. I know it's we're getting a little down the road here, but nevertheless, the scriptures are pointing to this reality that what we're doing here in terms of how we look at God's law matters eternally. For the good or for the bad? And notice that Jesus points that out when he says, I came to fulfill uh, the law. But if, you, uh, if you're going to relax the very least of these commandments, in other words, at least, you know, in the very least, you're not killing somebody. <laughs> but if you, if you relax that, then you're going to be, uh, you know, he says, least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you uphold the greater and say, I, I'm seeking to not hate my neighbor in my heart, 
uh, that there is a measure of holiness and righteousness that comes along with that, um, that the Lord is, is giving uh, grace and mercy and perhaps a, a greater blessing uh, in heaven, whatever that looks like. I can't even begin to tell you. Um, so, uh, chew on that. I know I've probably just confused everybody all the more. <laughs> um, <coughs> so, the passage, though, clearly teaches that Jesus is concerned with keeping... He's concerned with keeping the letter of the law, right? Is there any question that he's concerned about that? But he's also talking about the smallest letter, an iota, a dot. When he uses those words, he's talking uh, in the Hebrew, those are the two smallest marks in the Hebrew language. So in ours, it would be like a comma and an apostrophe. Um, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law of God in terms of God's requirement that his people fulfill it um, until it has all been fulfilled in the end of time. And um, So the key is uh, what he says at the end in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying about the scribes and Pharisees? They're not going to heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds them, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they were seen as the ones who upheld the law better than anybody else. They didn't uphold the law at all because they were only focused on the letter and not at all on the spirit. So we have to understand the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And if we relax either of them... Um, then there's a lot for us to consider here. Um, any questions on that? We probably shouldn't spend much more time talking about heaven because <laughs> I don't have a lot more answers. But um, some there's a great book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn that maybe help you a little bit. He kind of he he works through the scriptures and. He has an idea of what that might be like, but he'll even tell you. I don't really know in the end, but uh, here's my guess. <laughs> Many with oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's always, that's always uh, really in everything, that's always our danger. But uh, specifically, as we look at the law of God, this is the greatest danger. Is we're either going to lean toward legalism or we're going to lean toward license and fall off on one side or the other. The difficulty is staying in the middle of the road. <laughs> Say the law is important, um, but I have to understand not just the letter, but also the spirit of the law. We have to walk that road. No, no. In fact, the Proverbs, the wisdom of the Proverbs would say that we do tell someone when they're foolish. Um, it says the fool is the one who doesn't fear God. And so um, you're asking, what does it mean to... Call someone foolish? Right, you're liable to hellfire. Um, <coughs> the idea there is that we would be um, uh, intentionally seeking to um, to bring someone to a place of um, where we're insulting them, to bring them down, or to. Uh, to break them down or to uh, kind of crush them with insult, yeah, berate them, um, that 
you know, if I'm if I'm intentionally seeking to find things about Alan to criticize, um, and in the end I just say, well, the biggest issue is that you're just an idiot. If that was my heart, that I'm constantly trying to just beat someone down with words, um, that really at the end this this is not even true. Um, I'm just trying to use a verbal way of that. It, it reveals something about my heart, and that is hatred. And that's what it's pointing to is the hatred of the heart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Any other questions? Well, maybe this is a little more helpful as we continue to walk through the law, or we only have two more weeks of it, but um, as we think some more about the law and its implications in our lives and how all that works out. Thinking letter and spirit is very important. So we've got two more rules and then we'll move on to uh, some other things in terms of how we study the Bible. Um, next week, hopefully, we'll get through a section on being careful with parables, um, the difficulty of interpreting parables, and then uh, rule number 10, uh, looking at prophetic, uh, the prophetic passages of Scripture and how we read prophecy. So uh, we're out of time. Let me pray, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you uh, so much for this time that we've had to uh, look to your word and to consider even more uh, the importance of your law and understanding your law correctly. Um, Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of the Proverbs, and I pray that you help us to distinguish between Proverbs and law. And as we read your law, to know um, what you command and uh, also what, um, what you desire of our hearts and the hearts that you, um, you long to see in your people. And I pray, God, that you would do that work within us, that as we strive to be sanctified, as we strive to, um, to work out our own salvation, that you would be, uh, you would be busy um, doing that work within us, uh, giving us Uh, the mercy giving us the grace and uh, continuing to be patient with us as we work uh, toward upholding not just the letter but the spirit of your law that you'd be glorified all the more through us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that uh, we we could come here every day the rest of our lives and never even uh, really scratch the surface of all that you have revealed to us in the scriptures, that um, there's always more to know and always more to grow in. And uh, Lord, we're thankful that you give us this place, you give us this opportunity and one another to think with and to grow with. Uh, Lord, I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters and pray that you you bless them tonight as we all go home uh, and that uh, our hearts would be prepared as we gather for worship this coming Lord's Day, uh, that you be glorified in our worship and that we would be uh, filled with greater measures of joy uh, in our relationship to one another and most importantly, our relationship to Christ. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.